Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Michael Reed Show. Wednesday morning, the 8th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. A record number of people were treated on hospital trolleys instead of in hospital beds yesterday. It was uh, the second day running when 760 people were told they were too sick to go home. Doctors told them they needed hospital care and they would have to be admitted to the hospital. The problem was that all of the beds were already full, leaving sick, sometimes old, frail and vulnerable people having to wait on a trolley until a bed became available for them. The Minister for Health said he was sorry about that. Simon Harris said nobody would ever want to see anybody in this situation which was a peculiar statement in itself given that people are in this situation every year and every day of the year and have been for decades at this stage. Let's talk about this with Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, who's a TD for Dublin Fingal. And a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Good the, morning, Michael. The Minister also went on to say uh, it's not like this could have been uh, avoided and uh, they're doing everything that they can to alleviate the situation. Oh, it's just exasperating and uh, certainly talking to people uh, inside the other night, they were absolutely exasperated and exasperated with the excuses. I mean, the idea that, uh, that that somehow the minister manages yet again to be surprised by the flu, uh, I think is just laughable at this stage. You know, uh, people just throw their eyes up to heaven. We knew the flu was coming. If the minister didn't know that the flu was coming, uh, members of the IMO, uh, the IMO and the IHCA and, and other uh, representative bodies were screaming it from the rafters mm. uh, from as early as uh, August, September that the, a particularly virulent strain of flu was coming. We knew from Australia that it was going to be bad and instead uh, the Minister failed to prepare. And, what about uh, the HSE? Did the HSE know that there was going to be an outbreak of flu and that they asked for additional resources? Well, they they would have known there was going to be uh, an outbreak of flu. And I mean, the HSE are constantly looking for additional resources. But I mean, the minister knows that there's a capacity crisis within the health service. You know, the HSE knows there's mm. a capacity crisis, but they have to work within the policy as set by uh, by the minister and the direction as set by the minister. I think the, uh, you know, the, the issue that we're seeing now, the 760, is very shocking. It's another record broken. It was 760 for mm. two days in a row. We don't know yet what the figures are for today. But what we do know is that the numbers very rarely, if ever, drop below 500. So it's, you know, I mean, it, the, the, the Taoiseach was at a microphone yesterday saying, you know, that this is unprecedented and, uh, you know, that emergency measures have to be taken. But the truth is there is a daily capacity crisis. So you might be able to say there's extra because of the flu. But the trolley numbers vary. I mean, how many times have I been on this programme, Michael, talking about this exact thing? The trolley numbers very rarely uh, drop below 500. So it's not very fair to say, oh, well, suddenly we have an outbreak of the flu and that's caused overcrowding. Mm. Overcrowding is a daily reality in Irish hospitals. And I have to say for patients and staff, it is, uh, it's incredible how they're coping. I mean, I, I saw nurses on the TV and I've spoken to nurses in, in my own area. I actually don't know how 
they uh, and, and their colleagues, the uh, doctors, allied health professionals, supporters, cleaners, everybody else. I don't know how they are coping um, day in and day out for the patients. They're in and they, they get transferred and, they, they, and they're out. But doctors, nurses and, and, and the other health workers, they're going in every day of the week. It, mm. it must be incredibly demoralising yeah. for them. Pulling their hair out, uh, the stress levels are, are through the roof, no doubt. Uh, but tell me about the patients for the time that they are in the hospital or for the time that they're in the emergency department or in a, a trolley on a, a ward. We're being told that they're being treated on trolleys. Are they getting the same level of care? They couldn't possibly be getting the same level of care. Uh, and and the, the, the health workers will tell you that themselves. You know, uh, I, I spoke to a nurse there recently. She's nursed in 35 years. She said if she could go back to the nurse who had trained her mm. uh, originally, that she would be absolutely horrified. She had to learn how to treat a patient on a chair, how to treat a patient um, in an inappropriate mm. location, you know. And quite apart from anything else, I mean, accidents in emergency departments are not designed for people to be in them for an extended period of time. People are now eating three meals a day in A&E. The trolleys are very narrow. You can't turn over on mm. them. Uh, you know, you, 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 they're, they're deeply uncomfortable. The lights are on 24 hours a day. There's no dignity. Yeah, and well, between the lights and uh, the machines beeping and all of that, yeah. you challenge anybody to try and get a, a night's sleep in one of these places. Yeah. And you hear of people but having to spend a, a couple of days uh, in emergency departments. And, uh, and that's mm, just, mm, it's just mm, intolerable. I mean, mm. there's data emerging from uh, from the British, uh, in, the, in the British journals now, uh, it's leaked, so you know we haven't got the full picture yet. But they estimate that uh, one out of every 83 patients who spend more than six hours on a trolley um, will suffer uh, consequences, catastrophic consequences, uh, um, up to and including death as a result of that. So we now know, I mean, we, we obviously yeah. know that it's detrimental to their health, but it looks like uh, the research in Britain is going to be able to tell us the figure that we can put on that. And that is very, very frightening. You know, I mean, that's compromising patient care. And that's not the staff compromising patient care. That's the system compromising patient care. The staff are doing their best. I mean, you you will know this yourself. And any of your listeners who've been uh, in the Lourdes or been in Bowmount or any of the hospitals around will tell you that, you know, the staff, the staff are working flat out. They're not taking their breaks. They're working um, beyond the, the level of their shifts. We have junior doctors working excessively long hours just to try and keep the show on the road. And all the while, we have a capacity crisis. Mm. We need more beds. You know, more beds are what's needed so that people can transfer either beds in the community or beds in the hospital. And that leaves the staff having to make some very tough decisions, doesn't it, about who gets those beds? I mean, you might be looking at somebody who's very, very sick, and you might be looking at somebody else who is sick, but not quite as sick, but is very, very old. Yes, and and they're having to make those choices every day of the week when really the the only reason you get onto a trolley is because you're too sick to go home and you need to be in hospital. I mean, you, the, the the trolley count is not the number of people who turn up at A&E. It's the number who have seen the doctor and the doctor has said, you are too sick to go home. You cannot go home. You must be in hospital. Yeah. And, you know, we have people, we know that there are people in beds who could be transferred out if there was a, a home care package and home supports in place for them. So, you know, we know that there's 6,000 people waiting on um, home care packages or additional home care hours. So, you know, I mean, the, 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 those people are just going to get added to a waiting list. You can't discharge them because the home care supports are not there. They're not funded. So, you know, I mean, you, you're looking at a lot of waste in the health service. Mm. You know, you've got somebody who could be discharged into the community to be looked after with the support of, of home health and a home care package and a primary care team, which is a very inexpensive way to deliver care versus 
€6,000 uh, for, you know, a bed in a hospital, mm. which is not needed when you have people in accident and emergency who desperately need to be in those beds. I mean, it's not, uh, it, yeah. it's not a hard one to figure out. We need additional beds. The Minister knows that. He announced 199 uh, additional beds. What he didn't announce, though, uh, Michael, which I think is, and that's the very telling thing, is that every single one of those beds, be they in the community or in nursing homes or in hospitals, will be closed again on the 31st of March. Mm. All of those beds have a sell-by date. They're all closing on the 31st of March. And I I just think that is the most cynical thing to do because we know the trolley numbers very rarely go Mm. below 500. So there is a real need there for additional beds, but the Minister is only putting those beds in until the 31st of March. And now the HSE is back uh, to contesting the figures. Uh, They're saying that there's fewer people who are being treated on trolleys than the INMO is saying. They uh, had disputed these figures for a long time, but then came to an agreed way of counting people. What do you make of uh, this current conflict? It's just just a distraction. I mean, the INMO have been counting those figures for 15 years. Um, Everybody, uh, journalists, I've heard yourself quoting them, you know, uh, health policy analysts, uh, health economists, everybody uses the INMO figures as a snapshot because they count those figures every single day. So what they show you is the trend. It's not, I mean, the daily figures are quite shocking, but what they show you is the trend and they show you that the, the figures very rarely drop below 500. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's what, five years now, since six years, since uh, James Riley said, never again will we see the scandal of 560 patients on trolleys. We've now gone to 760. So there's no doubt that it's getting worse. So if you don't, you know, if you don't want to, to, to look at the INMO figures, look mm. at the trend. The trend is going only in one direction. It's going up. We know that the uh, trolley rates were 9% up on, 28, mm. on 2019 from 2018. And we know that uh, 2019 was the worst ever, uh, was the worst ever year on record. The INMO count those figures. They count them every day. They're trusted by everybody else. The HSE only come out and discredit them uh, or attempt to discredit them when there is uh, when there is a, a, a serious surge or when yeah. there, there's a controversy and they're in the news. And I actually think it would serve them better to concentrate on trying to fix the problems in the health service rather than trying to have a scrap with the INMO over the figures. All right, and uh, some of the figures are, are through the roof as we've been hearing in some of uh, the bigger hospitals uh, around the country. But when you take a small hospital like Our Ladies Hospital in Navan uh, and you're told that 28 or 34 people are waiting on trolleys who have already been admitted... They're too sick to go home. They've been admitted to hospital, but there isn't a bed for them. Uh, You think that's a a colossal amount of people. But the HSE says that's not the case because uh, they've 24 people on an escalation ward that they've opened up. But, I mean, an escalation ward is not... It's it's not a proper ward. It's it's just a room off A&E where they put the patients. They're still on trolleys. They haven't Mm. been admitted to a proper bed. They're only... uh, You know, these are temporary measures. They're not in the hospital. And those beds that are opened up and those escalation beds are just trolleys put into another room. I mean, and if this is the level that the HSE are going to go to now where they're, you know, warehousing, where where they're warehousing patients, in other words. Exactly. And they're, and they're arguing over the description, you know, I mean, the fact is there is a capacity crisis. The minister has reports on his desk which will prove to him that there's a capacity crisis. Mm. He knows there's a capacity crisis because he's asked for announcing 199 additional beds. The uh, the problem is he's only announced those beds to the 31st of March. So I don't know if he thinks that the population is going to magically get better or uh, if the numbers are somehow just going to drop. Um, I mean, they're not. Those beds are very, very badly needed. Not now for today's crisis, 
but for the ongoing crisis mm. uh, that, that's within, uh, okay, that's but, within our health. But as you say, we've hundreds of people who are in hospital beds who don't need hospital care. The problem is that there's nowhere for them to go. There's hundreds of people down in the emergency department who are waiting to get into those beds, but they can't get into the beds because uh, the people can't be discharged. And if they do get into the beds, that means those beds will be taken up and planned procedures will not uh, be possible because there won't be a bed for a patient to be admitted on a a planned basis. Uh, And this leads uh, to other concerns uh, and operations being cancelled. Some of those operations are very, very serious operations and some of them are uh, very important in terms of survival. Cancer patients are being told that their operations are being cancelled, for example. And that's, I mean, this is the thing. If you're told that you need... Uh, that you need to have an operation. There's a couple of things that happen. So, you know, um, obviously, you know, these people are in pain. They, they're worried. They're anxious. They're nervous. They need to have the operation. They've been told by the doctor that they need it. Mm. Then they get the phone call to say, right, here's the date for your operation. So they arrange for childcare or they arrange for time off work or they arrange for a lift. Or they, you know, everybody tries to coordinate to get the person into hospital for that day. Then they get the phone call to say, oh, we're terribly sorry, but that operation now has to be cancelled because A&E is backed up. Now, what does that person do? They don't get better. You know, they don't suddenly just click their fingers and say, oh, now my hip doesn't need to be replaced or now my, uh, you know, now my, my long-term illness mm. that requires uh, attention is just going to suddenly fix itself. That's not what happens. Those people continue to be sick. They go back to their doctors. They're trying to manage with their GPs in the community. Their doctor says, OK, we'll try and schedule you again for the surgery. They're missing time off work. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're on medication in some instances to manage their pain. And you know, they're not able to live a full life. You know, they, they need uh, they need they need the surgery. So they, and most likely these people have waited a year, if not more, for a uh, planned elective procedure, and then they just have it put off. And all that happens is that those people remain within the health system in an inappropriate location, being treated for the symptoms when they could potentially get a, a cure from a procedure and they just cannot get into the hospital and very often those people end up because they become uh, acutely ill because they're they can't get they can't get treatment and those people end up back in A&E it's like a revolving door it's like a merry-go-round Michael and you know I mean you'll know yourself I know from from your own community I will I do as well people who have been left waiting and waiting and waiting and then have had no choice but have had to go to their GP and their GP will say well look there's nothing that I can do for you you will now have to go uh, to accident and emergency and they find themselves back in accident and emergency and it's a cycle that needs to be broken we've had nine years of Fine Gael in government and okay they blame Fianna Fáil and, and they're, they're right to do so the, the recruitment embargo that Fianna Fáil put in place the pay cuts all of that did make a massive contribution to pushing the health service back but Fine Gael have been in government for nine mm. years between both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, they have uh, they have been in government since the foundation of the yeah, state, well, I mean, and we it's now find thing. ourselves with the health service in the state that it's in as a direct result of their policy. Well, I, I don't think there's anybody who can argue that nine years ago Fine Gael were voted into government on two grounds: one was to fix the economy, and the other was to fix the health service. Oh yes, and uh, Dr. James Riley, who was a, as a former TD for the constituency that I'm proud to represent, knocked on people's doors and said, "I want to, I want to fix the health service." 
and uh, they believed him. But unfortunately, uh, far from fixing it, uh, it was made much, much worse under successive Fine Gael ministers. And I mean, the, the evidence is there. And that's, you know, before you mm. start to play politics with it, the evidence uh, speaks volumes. And we saw that yesterday. Two days in a row, 760 people on trolleys because of a very predictable surge caused by the flu. We must be the only uh, state in the world where uh, the health minister will come to a microphone uh, practically every uh, every mm. Christmas shocked. time or every New Year mm. time and say, I'm mm. shocked and horrified yeah. at the flu. Dreadful. That yeah. happens every yeah. year yeah. at this time. Never, never thought people would have got sick. Never thought people would have got the flu in the winter. <laughs> yeah, imagine right. that. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Sinn Féin's Thanks. spokesperson on health, uh, Louise O'Reilly, who is a, a TD in Dublin Fingal. The Michael Reid Show. <laughs> Now, as you've been hearing, uh, an outbreak of uh, flu has put increased pressure on emergency departments uh, around uh, the country. Uh, More than 22 lives have uh, been lost as a result of uh, the flu this year. And you don't want to get the flu. You'll be very, very sick if you do. And you don't want to end up uh, in an emergency department. It's not too late to get the flu vaccine, though. This is a message coming to you from uh, the HSE. And Dr. Peter Finnegan, specialist in public health medicine with uh, the HSE, is on the line. A very good morning to you, Dr. Finnegan, and thank you indeed for joining us. Why would you encourage people to get the vaccine at this stage of the year? Well, because the flu this year is well covered by the vaccine. Uh, As you know, the vaccine is uh, designed to cover whatever predicted strains of flu arrive. Sometimes it doesn't match the flu, sometimes it does. This year, fortunately, it does. So we're advising people to get the vaccine, uh, particularly those at risk of complications from flu. And that would be people over 65, anyone with a chronic illness and pregnant women. Okay, in particular. But there are uh, other groups of uh, people that you would ask uh, to get the vaccine uh, as well. People uh, who are in nursing homes, for example, or people who work with people who are in nursing homes or healthcare uh, professionals uh, in general. That's correct. Uh, the HSE does run its own vaccination campaign for, for health workers and we advise health workers in particular to get the vaccine because they owe it to their, not alone to themselves and their families to get the vaccine, but to the patients and residents they look after. It's, uh, it's a very vulnerable group, uh, the elderly, particularly mm-hmm. elderly in nursing homes and bringing in the flu is high risk to that group. Okay, and why is it, do you think, so many healthcare workers don't get the vaccine? I think it's less than half of uh, hospital healthcare workers who have uh, been vaccinated. I think the main thing is that people think flu is something that isn't very serious, particularly for them. But uh, we know that flu causes quite a lot of deaths every year. I I know you hear of confirmed cases, Mm. but they, they estimate about... 500 deaths each year from flu, so it's it's not a mild illness. It's something that causes severe illness and death, even in healthy young adults. So that's why we recommend that uh, all the at-risk groups get it, the elderly and, in particular, healthcare workers. And what is the vaccine? Is it a small dose of the flu itself? No, it's not. It's, oh. a, it's a highly purified uh, piece of the virus itself and your body makes the antibodies against this little mm. protein from the virus and this causes the immunity against the virus now it's not a live virus it's only a highly purified part of the virus they pick uh, the viruses as you know flu changes all the time mm. they look at the worldwide distribution of flu and the patterns of flu and they predict the four strains that are likely to hit us here in europe and the vaccine is made 
and designed to cover those strains. So yeah, and strains. is it possible, do you think, Dr. Finnegan, that there's a, a misconception amongst healthcare workers uh, that because uh, they're in contact uh, with people who have the virus, that they will build up a, a, an immunity to it in the same way that if you're vaccinated and you're given a, a small piece of the virus, you build up an immunity? I have... Uh, b- I've looked at studies of, of why people don't get the, the vaccine, and there's various reasons, but basically it's just inertia. They don't, it's a bit of work trying to go in and get your vaccine done, and you have to take time mm. off, etc. The vaccine given in hospitals and in nursing homes uh, has made the uptake much higher. So I think it's basically, it's just, people just don't want to take the time to go into the doctors. Doctors are quite busy. You might have to wait around for half an hour or an hour. You might even have to hang about then for another 15 minutes afterwards and then people just are reluctant to do it. So making the vaccine easily available is one of the key recommendations for getting the uptake. Okay. Because of that, the high street pharmacists now offer it too. Anyone over 10 years of age can go into the high street pharmacist. And that sometimes is much more convenient than going to your local doctor. Okay, the thing that might convince you more than anything else is getting the flu or knowing somebody who's had the flu because you quite often hear people say, oh, I'm smothered with the flu uh, when it's a very bad cold. If you have the flu, you'll know the difference, I think. You certainly will. And I think the flu comes on very quickly. With be a matter of an hour or two, you can go from being a very healthy without a care in the world to being lying on your back, complaining of aches and pains and high temperature. Not the same as a cold or even a bad cold, which usually comes on very slowly and isn't quite as severe. And uh, anyone who's had the flu will know that there is a big difference between the two things. Okay, and we see uh, the HSE ask people to stay away from hospitals if they have the flu uh, uh, and to try and get treatment or treat themselves if they can, because you don't want to be giving it to somebody else. And if you, if, if you think you have the flu, what is it you should do? Should you go to your doctor? Should you go to the hospital? Or, or should you call for a doctor to come out to you? No, uh, the most people, when they get the flu, should just go home, take the remedies like paracetamol or ibuprofen, something to keep your temperature down and control the headache and the aches and pains. And you will be unwell for about five, six days, and then you'll recover. And there's no need usually to seek medical attention. Now, if you do need medical attention, it's usually because the flu has become more severe, you're short of breath or you're very worried about your general health. You'll know when you're getting uh, seriously ill from flu. That's the time to seek medical attention. Now, there's an exception. People in the high-risk groups, people who have chronic chest problems or chronic Mm. heart problems or liver or kidney problems, etc., or people who are very elderly, should perhaps get medical advice because they may be considered for antiviral treatments, the the Tamiflu, which does work against flu, but it's it's reserved for people who are at high risk. Mm. Okay, but uh, if you're sick for a number of days, uh, you may have lost your appetite uh, and uh, you'll feel very weak uh, as a result. It may be a hard one to call. Well, I think think one of the signs of flu... uh, getting complications is that your flu wears off it's not quite as bad after two or three days but you can get uh, pneumonia on top of it and in that case you'll start to feel worse again and if you feel worse your temperature goes up again or if you get short of breath or if your cough is getting worse it could be a sign of pneumonia Mm. and that's the time when you need to seek medical attention now Mm. when you are seeking medical attention it's important to ring the general practitioner or the hospital because they don't want flu patients coming in, mixing with the normal run-of-the-mill people who are coming in with bad backs, mm. etc. 
they try and keep the infectious patients until after the surgery or at the end of the surgery. So it's important to let your doctor know or let the emergency department know that it's flu you're coming in so that they'll try and prevent and isolate you from the other uh, patients in the department. Okay. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning with that uh, advice. Dr. Peter Finnegan, Specialist in Public Health Medicine with the Health Service Executive. Now, Wednesday morning means your local newspapers are available too. You'll find them in your news agents and we have them with us in the studio. Marie Kearns is here to take a look at what's on the front pages. This week we begin with St. Patrick's Day. This is a that's story right. that's covered by the Argus and Dundalk. That's right, Michael. As I say, Christmas is only just over and the already looking at the next big event and it is of course St Patrick's Day but the controversy uh, and why this story is making the lead story is because there's controversy over the decision of the organisers to host the parade not on St Patrick's Day itself but the evening beforehand. Olivia Ryan is writing about the negative reaction to this with one woman saying that the move takes away from the Irish tradition of having the parade on St Patrick's Day but Defending the move, chairman of the committee, Councillor Conor Keelan, said we have to try something new and do not have to be bound by tradition, particularly given the parade's absence in 2019. OK, so it'll be held on the evening of the 16th of March. That's yeah. correct. Mm-hmm. If it, if why why is that? Can they not get people out on the 17th or do we know? No, we don't really know. Um, mm. And they're talking about having events then the next day, other mm. events um, so I'm, I'm sure we're going to be hearing more about that. All right. OK, to uh, the leader in Dundalk and uh, it's uh, those stories from yes, Australia that yes. have uh, been getting coverage worldwide uh, that makes uh, for the lead story in Dundalk this week. That's right. It's reporting about uh, a local girl, Aoife Heffron, who was working on a fruit farm in New South Wales and she's describing how the sky was thick with smoke and how the farm had to be evacuated due to the seriousness of the fires. She and her boyfriend Kevin White left Dundalk for Melbourne in Australia last March before travelling to a fruit farm in New South Wales where they worked until a few weeks ago and they've now moved back to the relative safety of Melbourne because of the fires but even there residents have been advised to stay indoors due to the thick smoke. Uh, that's enveloping the city. Okay, we go to the Dundalk Democrat inside uh, the Dundalk Democrat uh, to a story on road safety because its front page is similar to that of the Argus. That's right. Um, inside the paper, though, I, a story that caught my eye about the effects that so-called boy racers are having on the lives of residents in parts of North Louth with the situation escalating to such an extent over the festive season that it prompted one resident to put pen to paper pleading for action to be taken before a tragedy occurs. The author, who wished to remain anonymous, described the community, be, a community being terrorised and the struggle to get to sleep at night for fear of damage being caused to their property and by these people who, they say, have no regard for anybody but themselves. OK, and uh, the parade on uh, the 15th of, uh, or 16th of March uh, on the front page uh, to Drogheda uh, and a 10-storey tower block to report on. That's right. The new face of Drogheda is the heading of the lead story in the Drogheda Independent about this new 10-storey tower block of Mill Lane on Trinity Street in the town, which the paper is reporting the council planners feel will add value to the urban skyline in recommending the urban 
urban life plan for the 41 development. They say its slender design will be significant. Loud County Council has given conditional permission for the development, although Antashka in its submission has expressed reservations saying the tower block will have inappropriate dominant impact on the historic townscape of Drogheda, which is characterised by church towers. Also on the front page, there's a lovely piece about local rugby stalwart and a regular listener to this programme, Shane Briscoe, being awarded the prestigious Leinster Rugby Sean O'Brien Hall of Fame Award on Saturday, which is just acknowledgement for his lifelong association with the game in the town. Okay, patients being treated on hospital trolleys. Yes, Thanks for the front page of Not surprising, the I suppose. Mead Chronicle. That's this right, week. yes. It runs with the under pressure Navin Hospital on its front page with the paper reporting that the hospital has enacted its escalation plan this week to deal with the surge in patients presenting with flu-like symptoms as it was reported that 34 people were waiting on a hospital bed with 10 of those in the emergency department and the North East Hospital Group has said it will make the extra 24 beds available as you've already said Michael uh, uh, you know in the surgical ward to cope with the influx. Now funding for addiction services locally is uh, just over half what it was less than 15 years ago. Let's talk about uh, this with Sinn Féin Councillor Rory O'Murku who's written to the Minister of State with Responsibility for drugs, Catherine Byrne, to ask why and what can be done about it. Good morning to you, Rory Murku, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Take us through the figures. In 2007, the funding was €1.4 million. Euro. What is it today? Today, it's for this is for the North East Regional Drugs Task Force area which takes in Loudmead, Cavan and Monaghan. It's €927,813. Euro, thousand, that like euro, that's exactly what it was last year. And obviously, if you even compare from last year, you're talking about increased insurance, increased operating costs, and you're talking about a number of organisations that literally, obviously, had to survive through the years of austerity and mm. literally to make the engine go with bailing twine and whatever else, and are doing really, really good work. Okay, but maybe but the like, problem isn't as bad as it was 13 years ago. Well, see, that's it. But no, no, here, what you have to say is on the basis of the amount of seizures that we are all aware of that you yourself have reported mm-hmm. on, like you can talk about the 3.2 million that was caught out at the Ballymac, you can talk about the 900,000 between cannabis and cocaine that was caught in RD just before Christmas. You've had numerous, I'm going to call them small, um, fines of, let's say, money and like, five and 10,000 worth of heroin, cocaine and various amounts of tablets that have been caught throughout Dundalk and Drogheda, you know what I mean? And actually there have been a number of, you know, large-scale catches within Drogheda under the Operation Stratus Mm. in relation to, obviously, the ongoing feud there. So I I think it's fair enough to say we're in the middle of the drug epidemic. I think it's fair enough to say, and forgive me for asking what was an intentionally stupid question, I think it would be ridiculous to think uh, that there was less problem with drugs or addiction 13 years ago than is the case today. Yeah, no, and the fact is, the fact is, 1.4 million probably wouldn't have, wouldn't look at it. But the fact that you got 1.4 million for uh, drug services back in 2007, and in the middle of an epidemic, you're getting less than a million. Like, it, all it says to you is that the government are not serious about dealing with this issue, and the impact is you have a huge amount of families that are being impacted, obviously through addiction, not being able to avail of services. Mm. You're dealing with a huge amount of people then that 
remain as addicts, run up debts. These debts are visited on their parents, their grandparents, on the wider community. You have a huge amount of violence. You obviously have a huge amount of resourcing and funding that is going into drugs and criminal gangs. And then you have these services and also the Gardaí that don't have the resources to deal with them. And in fairness to Christine Mangan, uh, the chief super, who has uh, said lately, he said, Back when he started in the 90s in relation to drugs policing, he said demand reduction was huge. He says that's fallen away at this stage. He says every time we arrest somebody, let's say for burglary or or whatever, who has an addiction problem, the first thing they say to the guards is, here, I have nowhere to go to um, basically to seek services to get out of this circular hook that they're caught in. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, if uh, you reduce uh, demand, uh, you reduce uh, the level of use and uh, distribution, selling and all of that sort of thing. And uh, as a result, you reduce the need for the same level of uh, policing. But there was a big difference in 2007 uh, in terms of the country than uh, the country today, in that the country was awash with money in 2007, just before the crash. And I take it that what happened then was with the crash, the funding was reduced to the organisations in the region and was never restored. Completely. And what actually happened is that the North East Regional Drugs Task Force took a decision to literally ensure that they could sustain certain organisations. They called them hubs or what have you. And obviously in loud, like we've been blessed in the sense of you have the Red Door in Drada, you have Taurus in Dundalk. And... But you also then within Dundalk at the moment would have the Family Addiction Support Network Mm -hmm. who do great work and would also be a connect point between the guards and people who would come to them who might have drug debt um, issues with members of their families or things like that. And they're operating on 7,000 funding from the Drugs Task Force because they weren't even in operation um, when when there was money in 2007. So you're talking about unsustainable situations where you have a huge amount of organisations that are being sustained on the basis of volunteerism and you know people who have not taken wage increases or whatever else and organisations that are literally just getting through the gap while at the same mm. time the HSC is, does not have the level of service that you require from a point of view of dealing with people with drug addiction. Is it a case, do you think, of being penny-wise but pound-foolish? Because whilst we might be saving on what we're investing in reducing addiction and uh, the uh, different uh, treatments that go with it when people find themselves in that situation, instead we're spending on policing, we're spending on housing when houses are burnt down uh, as we've seen so many times uh, uh, and uh, the different problems that come as a result of drug usage whether that's antisocial behaviour or burglaries or whatever the case may be. That's it, you said it, it's crime, it's antisocial behaviour, it's the health impact, it's people who are misusing drugs for longer periods of time who then will have mental health issues combined with addiction issues. Uh, that All of these things are a huge problem and they're all costly and every burglar that's um, committing crime for their addiction, that's a cost to you and me when they break into our house. That's a cost when you have the criminal judicial system kicks in. 
you have the investigation, then you have to put them through court, then you have to put people away in jail, and that's at an absolute huge cost. And obviously, right. where crimes are committed and they're needed, you need to deal with people. What I would say is we need to deal with the criminal gangs and then provide the services that are required for people who are caught in a really, really bad situation, which is having a huge impact on their families, on themselves and us as a wider community. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Sinn Féin Councillor Rory O'Murku. The Michael Reed Show. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages uh, that have been coming uh, to us uh, this morning. What have people been saying to you, Marie? A lot coming in, Michael, in relation to the hospital situation mm. and your interview at the top of the show with Sinn Féin's health spokesperson, Louise O'Reilly. Margaret from Trim was listening into that interview and says, your guest is so right. Michael, how did the Minister not see this coming? I just don't understand that. that. If and if he didn't see it coming, he is not doing his job properly and shouldn't be in the job. I don't think it's a surprise, uh, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I don't think the minister saw it coming last year or the year before, for that matter. OK. Ava uh, emailed us to say I was in A&E on Monday from 3pm. Wasn't seen until 3am on Tuesday morning. I have pneumonia. I really should have been kept, but no beds. The Lord's Hospital was like a cattle yard. No seats for people to even wait in the A&E. I never want to be sick again. Okay. Barbara says, absolutely shocking what's happening in the hospitals. Very degrading, especially when you're sick and also vulnerable. Mm. They say, go to your GPs, but that's even worse, Michael. You can't get an appointment. Um, Martin says in relation to the hospital crisis that he believes this government to be the worst government in the history of the state and then wanting to commemorate the black and tans just when you thought they couldn't sink the black and tans I should Mm -hmm. say just when you thought they couldn't sink any lower they have Okay, we better Uh, say the government has said it never wanted to commemorate the black and tans That's right and they've deferred it. Uh, another listener, Brendan, has his own thoughts on, on why the mm. crisis is, it is, is as it is. Um, and he thinks part of the reason is because people overindulged on alcohol over Christmas in the New Year period and presented to the hospital with the effects of that as well as breakages, alcohol poisoning, dehydration, etc. And then elderly relations of these type of families being left uh, on their own to celebrate Christmas and not being uh, looked after properly and then ending up in hospital and then when they're ready to be discharged there's nowhere for them to go and they have to be kept in the hospital mm. so he thinks there's lots of contributory factors. Yeah. Okay I think some people got the flu uh, some people got sick uh, I don't know uh, if it's necessarily as complicated uh, as all of that but anyway Liam phoned in Mm. on the same topic and he says, Michael, do you not think that it might be better to, and more important, to disband the HSE uh, when you hear them talking about getting rid of those in the FAI, that I feel the HSE needs to be overhauled, the Mm. money being thrown into the health service and the problem just isn't being solved and just seems to be getting worse and worse. Okay. I'm not sure what the alternative is, uh, but uh, to answer the question directly, no, I don't think that that would be the solution. Harry says you wouldn't be waiting 12 hours for Mm. them to send you out the bill. And the sad part is that the sheep of Ireland will still keep voting for the same old, same old. Mm. Uh, Michelle from Drogheda, her worry is that when people 
hear how bad the overcrowding is in our hospitals at the moment that they won't then go to A&E if they need to go to A&E and fears that lives could be lost as a result that old people in particular don't have the energy to be sitting on chairs for hours on end waiting to be seen and sometimes it's a struggle even to try and get them to go to the A&E. Yeah well if you are feeling unwell do please uh, seek help uh, and uh, don't be dissuaded uh, from going to the emergency department if you are sick and it's not an emergency please don't go to the emergency department, uh, please go to uh, your minor injuries clinic uh, or to your GP or to your doctor out of call. John from Drogheda listening in to the programme I'm just wondering with so many people getting the flu injection, why are so many people still getting the flu? Mm, well, um, that's his worry about okay, it all. Okay, because not everybody's getting the flu injection the flu vaccine, yeah. Mm. Siobhan says, mm. I know some parishes don't have a sign of peace i.e. shaking hands at mass I think it's time that all parishes abandon this during the winter months, thereby reducing the spread of the flu. Okay. I hear you, Siobhan, because there's nothing worse being in a church standing beside someone who's sneezing and then being expected to shake their hands. Pat from Atboy just wanted to say that um, he, in relation to uh, the coming upcoming general election whenever that will be mm-hmm. he says I, all I want to say about Sinn Féin is that they can talk the talk I'm hoping now that they are able to walk the walk if they get the chance to do so OK all so right. that's his I'm thoughts on not it. sure what he means by that but I, I, I take it that's a, a Sinn Féin supporter never said mm, never said yeah, it sounds like that I thought at the uh, outset uh, it was the opposite but uh, I think uh, he's hoping that they'll uh, get a, a chance uh, to play some role in the next or maybe he's yeah. not and he's saying I hope when they do get the chance that they'll be able to All do right. it yeah maybe he needs to call us back okay. <laughs> mm, um, mm. moving on then in relation to uh, your discussion with Councillor Rory O'Murku on the drugs mm. uh, a listener got in touch to say so many lives being ruined by drugs would it be a good idea to or, may, or maybe it's happening already I don't know says this listener but to get reformed drug users to visit secondary schools and speak to young impressionable students about how their lives have been affected mm. it just might prevent these young people from experimenting in the first places in the first place mm and stop them from getting hooked down the okay, road. I think it does happen to some degree anyway. Yeah. So he mm-hmm. thought that might be a good okay. move. Uh, regarding the commemoration, or mm. not the commemoration mm. of the RIC, mm. Chris says, phoned in yesterday, mm. and he's surprised that we're even given any time to this, thinks it's an absolutely woeful idea. He says that uh, his grandfather was suffered at the hands of the black and tans, and that people in this country just don't have the stomach for anything like this, and cannot believe that it's even even getting any type of airtime. All right, so that's well, his the government disagreed. Now, the government, as you say, has uh, done a, a U-turn. Uh, it's come under an awful lot of pressure, uh, particularly from uh, the Independent Alliance, uh, the three independent ministers uh, who form part of the government who opposed uh, the commemoration taking place in uh, Dublin Castle. But let's hear what the Taoiseach had to say. Let's remind ourselves of what the Taoiseach had to say about the reason for holding this commemoration just a couple of days ago. Um, disappointed here that some people uh, are going to boycott the event. Uh, I think that is regrettable. Um, I remember, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was very controversial to uh, commemorate uh, the deaths of soldiers in World War I uh, because some people felt that uh, they shouldn't be remembered 
uh, because they fought for the United Kingdom, because they fought for the British, uh, that has changed. Um, we now all accept, or almost everyone accepts, that it is uh, right and proper to remember uh, Irish people, uh, soldiers who died in, in the First World War. Uh, and I think the same thing really applies to police officers, uh, police officers who were killed, um, Catholic and Protestant alike, uh, who were members of the RIC and the DMP, many of whose families uh, are still alive and remember them. Uh, so uh, I think it's a shame that uh, people are, are boycotting it, but um, uh, the government stands over the decision to hold the event. It stands over the decision to hold the event and right and proper to commemorate them. Uh, but uh, the government has since changed its mind. We'll be talking about this in more detail a little bit later on. That's right. Carmel, moving to a different topic, Michael, was listening in earlier in the week when we were talking about the exclusion zones around maternity hospitals mm. and, you know, just in relation to the protests over those uh, getting abortions. And she says, uh, do you not, agree, do you agree with everything that is in law Everything that is in law, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily right. She feels that the mother's rule shouldn't overrule the child's right to life and men might not always have the say on the abortion of their child. In some cases, they don't have a voice and not all men want free sex either. She feels that the government hasn't thought out abortion properly. I think the government has and I think most of us uh, believe in democracy. Okay, Brendan from Dundalk on uh, the situation regarding traders trying to make a living says that many shops on on the main streets in main towns Mm. have closed down in the past decade and urges shoppers to get behind local retailers to keep the centre of towns alive. He also feels that there should be incentives for derelict premises to get them opened again. Maybe a freeze on rates or lower rates is his thoughts on it. Okay. We had a phone call mm. from. Go on. Sorry. Am mm-hmm. I okay? No, no. Go ahead. Yeah. We had a phone call from um, a listener. Didn't want to give his name, but just on the schools opening, reopening after mm-hmm. the Christmas break on Monday, which of course was Little Christmas or Nullignaman, and he thinks that this shouldn't have happened. He thinks that it was disrespectful that on the 12th day should they not still be at home celebrating that what's happening is that people are celebrating Christmas when it's not Christmas at all and then the schools are opening when in fact it is the 12th day and wouldn't have been nice to have the children at home with the mum celebrating nulling the man. Maybe some of the moms might have been happy to have them in school, Michael. Mm. But there you go. That's okay. his thoughts on it. So we'll finish on that. All right. Well, thanks for that. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch. To the frightening news last night of uh, 20 Iranian ballistic missiles fired at two military bases, uh, which were home uh, to some American troops. <laughs> This is a CBS News special report. I'm Nora O'Donnell in Washington. There are reports tonight that Iran has launched multiple missiles at Iraq's al-Assad air base that is northwest of Baghdad, and that base houses U.S. troops there. This attack is believed to be in retaliation for the U.S. drone strike in Baghdad last week that killed Iran's top general. Qasem Soleimani has been killed 
and his bloody rampage is now forever gone. He was plotting attacks against Americans, but now we've ensured that his atrocities have been stopped for good. They are stopped for good. Uh, I don't know if you know what was happening, but he was planning a very major attack, and we got him. The jingoistic language of uh, the American president, uh, Donald Trump, but what has he done? Let's talk about this with Independent TD for Dublin Central, Maureen O'Sullivan. A very good morning to you, Maureen O'Sullivan. Morning. And, uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. There's a lot to be concerned about, I think. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, it was kind of, it, it, well, it was shocking to hear about the way in which a general in another army and other people with him, and we don't hear too much about the other people who were killed with him, that they could be, as he puts it, you know, taken mm-hmm. out by, on the orders of an American president. And you can only imagine what the reaction would have been if an American general, say, for example, had been killed while he was on a mission in, in Canada, <coughs> excuse me, yeah. or Mexico or somewhere like that. Um, it was unlawful. It was extrajudicial killing. There was no due process, regardless of what General Soleimani may or may not have been doing. Um, it was just appalling. And this was at a civilian airport in Baghdad, which I believe was built with U.S. money. Mm. Uh, what happened last night was mm-hmm. just a slap in the yes. face to America, according to Iran's supreme leader, who's been speaking this morning following on from the attacks. And he wants the Americans out of the, uh, out of the region. Yes. And I mean, look, we look at Iraq Iraq, and the kind of country that it is now. And regardless of what you would say about Saddam Hussein, at least in his reign, the majority of Iraqi people were able to live in peace. They had education, they had health facilities, etc. And then on this spurious um, invention of weapons of mass destruction, that country has been destroyed. And we know the numbers of people who have been killed in Iraq, not just in Iraq, but other areas, mm. other places in the, in the area of the Middle East. I mean, how... Donald Trump can think that this is not starting a war. This is what which he claims. I, I mm. do not know. But is it starting a war? I mean, the outpouring of mm-hmm. grief in yes, Iran yes. has been incredible. The millions of people who gathered in Tehran uh, and mm-hmm. uh, the uh, scenes that followed uh, the screaming, the chanting, uh, and indeed the deaths of some 56 people as a result of uh, the stampede and the calls for revenge, 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 resulting in uh, this statement uh, this morning from the Ayatollah Ali Khomeini that there will be further action mm. and that this was really just the first step. I know. And, you know, just any sane person would be hoping that it's not going to lead into a war because we know who suffers most in war, and that is the civilian populations. Um, and we know today with the, the kind of weapons that are available, nuclear weapons, etc., that, you know, when we talk about war, we're talking about absolute annihilation of, of countries and of people. I think the Iranians have been showing considerable restraint. Um, in the, the, the retaliation, I'm not into retaliation. I just hope that we can have saner heads that will prevail. Um, I mean, what has happened to compromise and discussion and, and dialogue and sitting down and talking through all of these issues? But mm. it's very, very upsetting, very disturbing that we have an American president now, like other American mm. presidents, who's speaking like a, a gunslinger in the Wild West. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, even if this was a, a despot leader or a mm-hmm. serious threat to the United States, uh, yes. it was a, a human being. And to use that 
uh, gung slinger language, that jingoistic language. We got him. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, maybe it speaks to the Americans, but it is pretty disgusting to my ears. Yeah. yeah, and I think you know that is part of the agenda. President Trump is facing this impeachment process. He's mm. also facing you know into another election, and is he trying to appeal to a certain aspect of American society? that appreciates those kind of words. But it's, um, and I mean, the other irony is, is that Iran had a democracy, which was overthrown back, I think, in 1953, mm. with US help, which installed a dictator there. Mm. Yeah, and then we've uh, the nuclear question as well. Yeah. You mentioned nuclear weapons. Uh, Iran doesn't have them. Uh, it had hoped to have mm-hmm. them, uh, but it entered into this program. And now it's saying you can forget about that. It's all bets off. Absolutely. Um but I, I do think that the Iranians, and in spite of those scenes of, you know, kind of mass grief, which are very disturbing to watch, which did lead to um, the deaths of a number of Iranian people, I do think that we have been, we've been seeing restraint on the part of Iran. Um, and I think they have agreed with everything that had them in that nuclear program. Um, and now that is in jeopardy because of the activities of, of President Trump. Mm. Uh, the support he's received uh, from the British uh, was unequivocal, I, I think. Uh, should he be receiving that type of support from other European countries? Well, it was disturbing to see the British response. Now, I know the EU collectively had <coughs> were calling for restraint. <coughs> Excuse me. But it was disturbing to see that. And, you know, you just wonder at the power politics that are going on and what Brexit is going to, what direction Brexit is going to lead Britain into when it comes to their foreign policy. Um, so, again, I would, would have been very disturbed by that. I mean, how can you call for, you know, restraint now after um, a situation like that? But one would hope that cooler heads would prevail. But mm. nobody wants World War Three. Mm. And if we're looking at the prospect of that or or, uh, something uh, maybe not as serious but still significant, uh, it is Donald Trump who uh, struck the first blow, isn't it? Uh, I mean, the responsibility lies at his hands. Absolutely. No, no question about that. And then part of that gung-ho language, which he has wrote back on now, was that he was threatening to attack Iranian cultural sites. And I think there's some 20 or so cultural sites that are UNESCO heritage sites in Iran. Um, and I mean, that is, that is very serious. Now he has come back on that. Uh, one wonders how and why, who got to him um, that we would have that. But like, you know, there's a terrible hypocrisy uh, at work when we come to American politics. We saw the role of America in our peace process, but yet you see the role of America in countries, you know, we think about back to Chile, we think of Cuba, we think mm. of Vietnam, etc. It's just hypocrisy with a capital H. There has uh, been some speculation uh, that uh, the uh, attacks, uh, these ballistic missiles uh, on um, these military bases mm. last night uh, would have uh, been uh, put it in place to uh, appease Iranian anger uh, yes. uh, and uh, that perhaps that that would be uh, enough to do that and that would bring a, a, about an end uh, to all of this. Uh, indeed, it seemed to be uh, the message that came first of all from Iran, the foreign minister saying uh, that uh, they had no intention of escalating this and didn't want to go to war. But the Supreme yes. Leader seems to be taking a, a different position. 
Well, you see, I think this is part of Iranian politics. And whereas we have a centrist president there and the foreign minister, we do have another aspect in Iranian politics. And it's interesting that, you know, there have been protests in Iran recently over uh, price increases in that. Uh, so I think Iran is also in a difficult situation. I would say I'm a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Doyle. Um, I have been since I came in back in '09, And we did have an opportunity, I think it was about five years ago, an official visit to Iran. And it certainly, um, you know, opened your eyes to a different um, Iran than what we see in some of the Western media. And we did meet the foreign minister. We met the human rights commissioner. We had very frank and very open discussions with the Iranian authorities on a wide number of issues, including human rights, the death penalty that is in use in Iran, looking at the the drugs issues as well, and also... um, the issues involving certain uh, religious groups like the Baha'i, for example. So it was certainly an eye-opening experience, Um, a very, very welcoming people, um, highly educated, particularly for women. Um, And it was a society that, you know, you you would look forward to going back to again because of its culture and its history. Mm. The last time uh, America involved itself in a, a conflict in uh, this part of uh, the world, uh, a direct conflict in Kuwait uh, with uh, Iraq, uh, oil was at the centre of it. Uh, and uh, indeed, oil uh, undoubtedly uh, central to all of this uh, as well. Statements uh, coming from uh, the White House, uh, I think, saying that if there were further uh, attacks uh, from Iran, it could forget all about oil. Yes, and we see already the price of oil has increased. That's probably a good thing for when we think about climate change and that. But we look at Libya um, and the oil situation and we look at the kind of country, the the devastation that has been caused in Libya today. Um, And again, you know, Western groups have been involved in that. What about the Irish government's response to this? Uh, what would you expect uh, to hear? Um, well, I do. I would expect. I think the, the initial response from the Tanishta was very was good. Um, you know, we do have to condemn the take the taking out in President uh, Trump's words, the taking out of a general in such a way, a drone attack at a civilian airport, um, no due process. Um, it, it's just appalling and I, we should be condemning that. And I think we also need to have a much, much, much closer look at the use of Shannon. Um, American troops are there. Um, they're not going off to the Middle East on their holidays. They're not going off mm. on uh, peacekeeping missions. You know, they're American troops. There are weapons on those planes and we are complicit in what's going on in the Middle East. And yet, you know, we're very well respected. Our voice is listened to. It is respected. So, we should not be talking out of both sides of our mouths. So we have a direct role in this. I do think, I do think so. And, you know, there have been a few people mm. who have been highlighting the issue of Shannon. They protest there once a month. Um, but I think of what we're seeing, the escalation now caused by President Trump, that we have to be, we have to be more forthright that Ireland's airports in Shannon are not going to be used to be part of what's going on and this other agenda that the United States seems to have. Mm. How long are they protesting once a month? Uh, Uh, 10, 15 years? Well, it's going on a long time, but um, Mm. only for them. I mean, nobody Mm. would know what's going on in Shannon. Yeah, no, I, I, I know, uh, and people do know, uh, and we've known, uh, I think, as I say, for 10, 15 years, perhaps more at this stage, yeah. uh, but yeah. uh, it, it continues, uh, and American troops continue uh, yes. to be transported through Shannon. Okay, indeed. we'll leave it there for the moment, and thank you, as always, for joining us here on the programme. So thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's Independent TD for Dublin Central, Maureen O'Sullivan. Now, as you've been hearing, the government has uh, deferred its planned commemoration of uh, the ORIC. We'll talk about this with 
with Fine Gael TD for Loud Fergus O'Dowd now and uh, a very good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. You believe uh, the plans as uh, they were proposed were wrong and that uh, the government were asking people to uh, cross a, a bridge too far uh, I, I understand. Uh, I'm sure you're relieved uh, that they've seen some sense. Well, I think the problem with any commemoration or remembrance is that it should be inclusive and, and not divide. And it was quite clear, I think, um, that the conflagration of uh, the Black and Tans and the RIC and the auxiliaries in people's minds wasn't clarified, it wasn't clear, and I think it upset a lot of people. And um, I think it was wiser not to proceed now mm. and to look again at, obviously, you can't wipe out Irish history and you can't say there wasn't an RIC and there wasn't a DMP. Mm. But what you can do is find a way to commemorate or to remember or find their place in Irish history in a way that everybody, whether you're Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, mm. Fianna Gael, Independent or no party at all, that you can, that you can, you know, you can, you can have your beliefs and your loyalties, but you can still recognise, you know, the the humanity, the people who were there. Uh, and they are part of our history. Uh, I think you were uh, making the point uh, that you had two yeah. uncles who were in the old IRA, one who was in the RAF, and uh, yeah. your wife's uncle was in the RIC, for that matter. But uh, My grandfather, her grandfather. grandfather uh, yeah. But, but, but you, be- you, you believed that the, the planned commemoration was wrong? I believed, I believed that it would be appropriate that it, it didn't take place, or that, or that I wouldn't attend if it did. And that's it. But like the point is that what is happening now is that I think is it will bring a clearer analysis of what exactly the RIC actually did, mm. and I think also about the Black and Tans, which were notorious for the you know the, the crimes and indeed the war crimes they committed, like burning mm. on the Balbriggan and in Drogheda and in RD and in Balbriggan, where they took people out of their homes and executed them, tortured them in some mm. cases, and left them lying by the side of the road. Leo Vratker and Charlie Flanagan really have been left red-faced over this, haven't they? I mean, they really botched it. Well, I, it, clearly, clearly, it's not going to happen now. And I think moving it on, we've, we, we yeah, have they, they, they it, really, it. They really did botch it, didn't they? I mean, do you think that's why Charlie well, Flanagan is so cranky about it now? Well, I think the word cranky can apply to you and to me and to other people at different times. Aye, well, it often, it often well, applies to me, I but I don't think it very often applies to Charlie Flanagan. He's very cranky about this, well, isn't he? Well, I think Charlie Char- Charlie put a lot of thought and effort into it. I, I think the difficulty is that... That's worrying. That's very... That's very <laughs> the difficulty is, Mike, that we need to put into, into commemorations in particular. We need to get buy-in from everybody, and it's clear from the commentary on the media that uh, that there is a dog mm. committee that they felt they weren't included in all of the detail. Now, there's dispute over that in the papers this morning. So the main yeah. thing is, what is going to happen in the future is that every party, every political party, will have to have buy-in. And the biggest problem I see coming, mm. notwithstanding the incredible uh, controversy and uh, problems over this issue, is that when we come to commemorate the civil war, you know that would be that would be an appalling vista, on because it was an appalling vista anyway in itself, unless and until we get mm. the appropriate and proper thinking put into it, and how we do it in a way that that is respectful and doesn't cause. Yeah. Uh, well, I think a lot of people would uh, agree with that, and probably a lot of people would have uh, agreed uh, with that before the government uh, announced uh, this this daft. Pl-
plan which they've completely botched up uh, and you wouldn't really know anything about getting cranky because uh, I don't think you've ever been cranky in your life <laughs> or something that. You. <laughs> uh, I, I have and I, I, I think uh, anybody like me who gets cranky every now and then will tell you that when you get cranky you start making mistakes and you start putting your foot yeah. in it and I think that's what Charlie Flanagan did yesterday he was cranky and he put his foot in it he started saying things about Dermot Ferreter uh, and uh, Dermot Ferreter had said look the government may not look to me for political cover or to the expert committee for political cover and then the minister went on to imply that he wasn't telling the truth and said that he had recommended that this commemoration would take place that's a big mistake isn't it well I think the, the, the actual expert advisory group said that the place of the RIC and Dublin Metropolitan Police in Irish history ought to be acknowledged in some format yeah and I think and everybody and Charlie Flanagan that. said well they actually said that we should commemorate it in the way that we had planned it yeah well I mean that, that's, and they said no what, we didn't and he got even crankier but the point is, the point is that uh, the point is that that the commemoration or the is not going to happen, and that there will have to be, and there will be a better and a greater analysis uh, of the RIC and the people who served in it, and the people who committed atrocities in it, mm. and also the decent people who served in it as well, because there were there were twelve thousand Irish people in the in that organisation, and the vast majority of them were Catholics. Their leadership was Protestant. Mm. It, in the War of Independence, what happened was the Black and Tans came in and they were, they, you know, they, as I said, they, they committed war crimes and they were, they were appalling. Mm. As, uh, the, as did the on, RIC, on, I think, to some degree. I mean, you were describing yeah. them as the stormtroopers for the British Army. Why do you think yeah, Charlie Flanagan well. wanted to commemorate the stormtroopers for the British Army? Well, the point you see is that we've already commemorated all of those uh, who fought in 1916 and those who died. Mm. And we found a way of commemorating even all those soldiers, including the British soldiers and the members of That's obviously right, yeah. of Oldig Mahern who died as in, well. In so, Grange Gorman, yes. But, uh, but but the commemoration, Michael, is about acknowledging... The state commemoration in Dublin Castle is something different and that's the point that people were talking about. No, no, making. no, I agree. I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think... Charlie Flanagan does. Pardon? <laughs> Charlie Flanagan does. He got very cranky when he was told that it wasn't appropriate. Well, look, come here. We all have we all have personalities, uh, but look, I think mm. I think Charlie acted with integrity and honesty at all times, and I think that he will go forward, uh, obviously, with greater consultation mm. into the future. And we've got, as I say, like uh, to put it a different way, I know Declan Bannock is not with me right now, but like as we're both TDs in Loud, and we meet regularly at the commemoration. Uh, for the IRA volunteers murdered by the Black and Tans and RD. And a couple of weeks uh, later, we meet commemorating the the soldiers uh, from the RD area who fought in, mm. in the 1914-18 uh, war. And I think that's the way we want it to go on, that we can, you know, that all of us can, can understand and appreciate and separate out our political views from the historic past. But we learn from a past, and in particularly the border constituency, and with the trouble, obviously, that there has been in the north, the loss of lives, thousands of people died, and that the whereas is on a knife edge now. Hopefully, that they will get back into power, that the that the Catholics and the Protestants or the Nationalists and the Unionists can work together. I mean, that's where that's where our effort has to be, and we and in the long run, I believe in a United Ireland. But it, you know, we can only we can only achieve that by by consensus and by agreement and by leadership. And I think that's the way we have to look. And I don't think that anything that Charlie Flanagan did, notwithstanding the fact uh, that it's not now going to happen, was done in any other spirit. 
than than you know trying to make a better Ireland. Well, was it a black and tans event that was planned? Because well, the headline of the Irish Independent today is that the black and tans event dis- descends into farce. Yeah, but if you look at that headline, you'll see that there are inverted commas around the black and tan boards. Because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, Michael, I, I'm not, yeah. I'm not moving yeah. uh, from from the facts in this one, mm. nor are you. No, and no, I think that no. was the big problem mm. that it wasn't clear that it wasn't about the black and tans, and that the black and tans were a part. Uh, they were recruited as an auxiliary force uh, to to the RIC in the middle of of the the campaign for for freedom in our country. So, and that was the problem. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean, you know, that, that we can't understand more about the who, what, the where, the whys, uh, and, and try and understand it better because that, when we know our history, we, we, we know hopefully we won't repeat, but then they say history is about repeating the same mistakes over and over again. But like what, what we have to do is we have to, we have, we have to learn from all of this. And I think we, we, I have learned certainly and I know that other people I'm speaking to have learned as well. And I, I think that we can, as a country, you know, we need to, we need to, we need to move, we need to respect our past and mm. we need to learn from it. Je- Jeffrey Donalds, Donaldson thinks sure. it, it should go ahead. Uh, it seems as though sure. Jeffrey Donaldson has more in common with Fine Gael than the rest of the country does. Well, Jeffrey Donaldson is a key player in the Democratic Unionist Party. He's a person I've met mm. uh, quite a lot. Uh, I'm chairperson of a cross-border Finnegal uh, group looking and trying to improve relationships with Jeffrey Donaldson and Steve Aiken and lots of other people up in Northern Ireland. And uh, while because of my broken leg recently, I haven't been able to be as active as I wanted to okay, be. Okay, but, 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 but we, we need to. We need to. If we want a united Ireland, mm. we need to have Jeffrey Donaldson uh, participating in that. We need the unionist community to share and to be part of and to have a real power and stake in our society. But it, it, and, that's, and that's the future but you underst- of our But do you understand the problem that your party is facing now? Uh, it's probably a good example uh, to look at Geoffrey Donaldson because a lot of people will think the only party in the Republic of Ireland that the DUP can identify with on the RIC is Fine Gael. Well, people can say what they like, but... But it's true. You know, uh, Michael, uh, uh, you're entitled to that view. No, no, it's true. Be, uh, it's true. It's true. On a fin- political fin- basis, I would have profound differences. Finnegan wants to go in, no, uh, on the issue of the RIC. I said, on, uh, I, yeah. I said on the issue of the RIC. No, uh, and no, Finnegan wanted to commemorate the RIC. Charlie Flanagan and Leo Radker said it was the mature thing to do. Jeffrey Donaldson agrees, and he wants to go ahead with it. Nobody else in this jurisdiction agrees at all. Okay, Michael. So the main point is the expert advisory group recommended a number of different commemorations. No, but in terms yeah. of the DUP... No, but I just wanted to, just to, go to answer your question. About the uh, DUP? The ending of the First World War, the founding of Dáil Éireann, the struggle for independence, mm. the civil war, and the place of the Royal Irish Constabulary yeah. and the DMP. And everybody... And Finnegan and the DUP it, believe... No, Michael, oh, OK, you can say that, but the facts that are in the paper today that I read, and yeah. you may not, I don't mean rudely... Mm. I've seen is that is that the committee did meet and it was agreed and I think what Dear McFerter said as well if I quote him correctly mm. is that it was agreed that there would have to be some yes, uh, but, event but that, not but that event he, nature, he said very clearly not that event and that that committee would not be used as political cover for the government the DUP agrees with the government nobody else agrees with the government this has led to Philip Bryan's article in the Irish Independent about Bradker kissing his credentials as a true Republican goodbye he says that Charlie Flanagan's political judge 
judgment has been called into question that Fine Gael sure. would lose votes as a, a result of this. Uh, sure. Flanagan won't be popular with most of the parliamentary party and the government botched the whole lot. Uh, is there any of that that you disagree with? Uh, I disagree with a lot of that, Michael, but uh, I won't make any difference we say that to because you still believe the opposite. Oh, no, uh, no. I, <laughs> I, I, will, I will discuss it with you, but uh, I'm not actually allowed to express my belief, no matter how cranky I am. Well, you're not cranky today, right? <laughs> no, I'm, very, nice. I'm trying not to but, be. <laughs> but the main point um, I want to make is this, that yes, we have learned from it. Uh, yes, we do want to work with parties in the North. Yes, we do need to work with the DUP and with the UUP and with the Alliance Party and with the SDLP and with Sinn Féin. Mm. That's, that's what I'm doing as chairman of this group. And that's what the Fine Gael objective is. And yes, I do believe in United Ireland, but I believe it to be by consent. And I believe that Jeffrey Donaldson, no matter how much I might disagree with a lot of what he says and what he thinks, I accept that he lives in this island and that I want them and us to work together to participate to make it a better place for everybody and that the economies north and south will benefit. We're a border county. Uh, we've done well out of out, out of the peace. So so has obviously uh, County Down, which is our joining county. I want that to continue. We need the consent of unionists. Uh, we need everybody on board in this island to make it work the better for everybody. And I am very happy to commit to that and I know that Fine Gael are very happy and I think that Fianna Fáil mm. want to do that and I think the Labour Party want to do it and Sinn Féin mm. uh, you know if they get into if they can But are, are, are you glad more. are you glad that the Fine Gael leadership saw the error of its ways and realised the mistake it was making or or, or is it or is it they were told by Kevin Boxer Moran that they couldn't go ahead Well it's not going ahead that's a fact, and the thing is to move it on now, Michael, and to make sure that uh, we read more about the RIC, that we learn more about them. I think that's important, uh, and that's what certainly I'm going to do, and that when there is a, a symposium or a colloquium or a, you know, a, 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 an occasion when we can learn more and I can meet with and talk to people who know more about it than I do, that I would be better off, and our country will be better off. And, uh, you know... Uh, the black and tans is is hugely damaging to the reputation of the RUC because they were a part of that at the end of the oh, day. I see, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So the RIC yeah, and yeah, and the yeah, problem yeah. is, uh, the, the problem is that uh, they will never be accepted and never can be or should be accepted as legitimate uh, in any way. Okay. And I think we have to make sure that whatever we do, that we separate that out. Okay, uh, and uh, the minister, your colleague in the doll, your Michael. parliamentary colleague said that that type of talk is airbrushing them from history. Well, that's his opinion and my opinion is that uh, uh, you can't the evil that the Black and Tans did will always be there. You can never airbrush it away because the monuments around the country and, and draw it down the Marsh mm-hmm. Road, uh, you know, to to Carl and Tierney and Hardy, mm-hmm. they're there and everybody can see them. Um, and they're never going to go away. Okay. But, but we have to try and we have to try and learn from all of that and make sure that you know that our country prospers, our people have jobs, the north south uh, bodies work, and that we move towards. And I believe in the United Ireland down the road, and we work with the DUP. No matter what we think of Geoffrey Donaldson, you know we have to work with him because he represents 
the majority mm. uh, unionist view in the north. Yeah, no, he, repre- he represents yeah. a Fine Gael view as well, of course, uh, which is. But, uh, but he's not a member <laughs> of Fine Gael. No, but he represents a Fine Gael but view. But he's very welcome. Yeah, on this issue, there's there's uh, yeah. few <laughs> uh, who can stand beside him and agree with Fine Gael. Well, I mean, that's 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 the privilege we all have. Okay. To make up our own money. Well, well done. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs> Fine Gael TD for Loud Ferguson Doubt. Michael Riccio. Now, it may soon become mandatory for restaurants uh, to display how many calories are in a meal alongside uh, how those meals are listed on menus. Uh, the public is uh, being asked for its views on this and has until the 14th of February to let the Department of Health know how they feel. The department says it's because of an increasing number of people who are eating out and it's to ensure the calorie information is available at the point of choice for the consumer and for customers to make informed choices about the food they consume and provide the information they need to manage their calorie intake. Mark McGowan, President of the Restaurants Association of Ireland, is on the line. Good morning to you, Mark, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, You oppose uh, the introduction of such legislation. Morning, Michael. How are you? Um, Absolutely, yeah. Um, The Restaurants Association, we'd be be against this entirely. I think um, it seems to be... It's been ran through by government. I think very little thought has been given to the negative effects and the consequences it'll have on restaurants. Uh, I think it's going to cost the, um, the state tens of millions of euro. Uh, I think the money could be brought into other other aspects of obviously primary care. I think needs needs money more than um, more than calories does. But um, the administrational um, consequences, I suppose, for chefs is, is it would be very difficult to deal with. I think it's um, it'll be better. We'd be better off um, educating maybe the the youth and schools, and making sure that um, that's 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 the way we teach people about calories because calories comes in many different shapes and, mm. and forms. And I think to to calculate a, a proper diet, I don't think calories is the be be all end all. You know. Um, okay. Yeah. You said uh, it'll cost the state tens of millions. Why would it cost the state anything at all? Well, if you were to look at, if, if you were to have my environmental health officer on the line, I think if, if, if those guys are going to be the ones that are landed, it's just going to be landed on their desk. They can't keep up as it is. I think they're going to have to bring in a hell of a lot more administrational um, um, department on their side and to make sure that these, this is regulated properly. And um, like from if you were to look at it as, as a restaurant owner, um, in order to get this right, um, they have a system out there called MenuCal. Uh, for me, it doesn't. It's not ideal. It doesn't work. It's still going to. It's still going to have a, a very big impact on chefs. And there's already enough red tape around it. Um, the the industry, in a sense, that even with the EHOs coming in trying to monitor in terms mm. of HACCP, uh, it'll it'll make things a lot more difficult. And I just don't think that the. I don't think they have the resources. And I think any EHO would agree with me. Uh, but they say it'll be uh, in order to improve public health, uh, and if uh, that is uh, the case, uh, undoubtedly it'll, re- it'll result in savings. I don't. I, I don't think. I, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. I think um, the most important thing is to educate, not legislate. I think it's very important that uh, we teach again our um, mm. our young people on how to eat and, and what is a healthy lifestyle. We have to teach children about balance. And um, I think that's the that's the best way forward. Calories, I'm trying to monitor calories, um, and, and uh, it just doesn't work, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I mean, if you know that you're eating less calories, uh, there's less chance of you becoming obese. That's education, is it not? 
It is, absolutely. It is education as well. But we have to also look at uh, the impact it will have on our dining culture. And I think that eating out is, should be, um, it, is a, it is a treat. It's something that people, it's, it's kind of, it's many stages in a sense to forcing uh, this information down people's throats. Mm so to speak, if you the pun. Is that the problem um, that you're concerned that people will say, oh, look, I, I won't have a, a dessert uh, so that there will be less bought in restaurants? No, not so much, Michael. I mean, I'm not. I'm not genuinely not worried about mm. sales when it comes down to this. It's more down to um, the, our, our traditions in terms of dining. If you have, if, if, you, if you come into any restaurant, you look at what tasty islands from Falls Island are trying to do at the minute in terms of our food culture and developing mm. our cuisine, I just, I, I really disagree with having all of these um, these numbers and calories and everything else on it. We already have the allergens in place, mm. which I think is a very good thing. A lot of people um, would like to see the calories on the menus, though. Many, I don't think, I, I disagree with that as well. I think that it's okay when it comes down to um, your takeaways and fast food outlets, but I think um, culinary art as well is an art, and when it comes down to cooking, you know, every, every chef... Mm. Um, pinch of salt or, or measuring may be different because let's face it if, if any chef that's worth his salt will know um, that he has to season things different season ingredients mm. differently mm. because mm. of the flavour profiles for different times of year as well you know mm. so it's, 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 it's not black and white when it comes to cooking cooking is an art I'm surprised you don't have more confidence in your chefs no, no, well, in fairness, like, it's not that. It's, it's, if you look at, do you chat any good suppliers, and mm. the Boyne Valley has, has many of them, they'll tell you that their ingredients, flavour profiles change from, from time to time, so it's, it's not set in stone. All right, Mark, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. People can make their views known to the department by the 14th of February. Mark McGowan, President of the Restaurants Association of Ireland, brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.